like to have you turn with me to the 22nd chapter of Matthew. What we've been observing over the past few weeks is a day of controversy in the Lord's life. It began with the question of his authority back in chapter 21 and uh, continued as various uh, representatives from Israel um, attacked him on various points. First, the Herodians whose concern was nationalism. They asked the question, should we pay taxes to Herod or not? Then the Sadducees, whose problem was one of rationalism. They didn't uh, accept any supernatural phenomena, and their question was concerning the resurrection. Is there a resurrection from the dead? And now we come to the question of the Pharisees, which has to do with legalism. As I read through this chapter again, it reminded me of the story of the Irishman who was walking down the street and he saw a street fight in process, and uh, he watched for a few moments, and then he said, uh, excuse me, is this a private fight, or can anyone get into it? That's the sort of thing that uh, was going on here as one after another of these groups began to attack uh, our Lord. And we come now in verse 34 of chapter 22 to the question that the Pharisees raise, which though Matthew tells us was asked to test him, we know from the book of Mark that uh, the lawyer or the young rabbinic student who asked this question really uh, was looking for answers. He wanted to know. I had a prof once who uh, introduced the class, the first class, by saying there are three types of questions which uh, people ask. Students will ask questions to show the class how much they know, or they will ask questions to show the class how little the prof knows, or some students will ask questions to get answers. Now, I think, though, uh, this, uh, this young lawyer is, writing, is, is asking this question to test the Lord. He legitimately wanted to know what the Lord would say. He was looking for answers, and therefore his question was legitimate. Beginning with verse uh, 34, Matthew tells us that when the Pharisees heard that he had put the, the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. They could hardly restrain their glee that uh, the Lord had put the Sadducees in their place. And so now one of them, a lawyer, asks him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the entire law and the prophets. Now, what this uh, young lawyer was trying to do was simplify things. By Jesus' day, Judaism had broken down into lists of regulations and rules. They had forgotten anything of their relationship to God. It was simply a matter of uh, responding properly to regulations that the rabbis uh, had established. There were some 613 laws, one law for every letter in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the only reason they hadn't added to the list is because they were trying to keep to that, uh, that number. It was a, an extremely complex, very difficult system that required lawyers, that is, students of the law, who gave themselves to nothing more than study of the Talmud or the Mishnah, these commentaries on the... Uh, on the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And it was so complex, no one could keep it straight. They couldn't even remember the laws, much less keep them. And so most people at this time simply didn't try. They had, they had given up. 
There were some who studied the, the law assiduously. There are others who just, they just didn't care any longer. And apparently this, uh, this young lawyer was at this point. He, he had given up trying to please God by keeping the law. And so he asked this question, what is the great commandment? And the Lord simplifies for him in these words in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That, he says, is the great commandment. Love God with intensity. That's what he means by loving him with your heart and your soul and your mind. Love him with everything that you have. Go for broke in terms of your devotion to God. Love him in the morning. Love him in the evening. Love him in the shop, in your kitchen, in your vehicle, when you're out hunting elk, when you're uh, sweeping the garage or washing diapers or whatever you have to do. Just, uh, just love him with your whole heart with all of your intensity. That, the Lord says, is what really matters. That's the great commandment. That's what simplifies everything, sorts out all of these regulations that are so impossible to keep. As John Fisher puts it, love him in the morning when you see the sun arising. Love him in the evening because he took you through the day. And in the in-between time when you feel the pressure coming, remember that he loves you and he promises to stay. When you think you have to worry because it seems the thing to do, remember, he ain't in a hurry. He only cares for you. So love him in the morning, John says. That's, uh, that's the sum and substance of what God requires. Love him with all of your heart. Well, the question then is, how do you do that? How can I love God with all of my heart? Is it some kind of emotion that I have to evoke? then uh, if it is, I'm in big trouble because I don't know about you, but uh, my emotions wax and wane. Sometimes I feel like a nut. Sometimes I don't. Uh, sometimes I feel like loving the Lord and sometimes I don't. Sometimes my heart is cold and, and indifferent and sometimes I wake up in the morning not feeling very uh, devout or committed or not even wanting to follow the Lord and, and yet other times there's a real warmth and love for Him. And... Uh, so somehow there, there has to be another answer than relying upon our emotions because you can't command an emotion. You can't evoke a feeling that isn't there. So what is it that the Lord is, is trying to tell us by this, by this command? Well, the place to begin, according to Scripture, is to remember, first of all, that God loves you. That's, our love for God always grows out of an awareness that we're very special to him. He, he cares for us. Most religions in the world are designed to, to get God to care for the, for the worshipers. But uh, we start from an understanding that God really loves us. He cares about us. And it's the sort of love that you and I are unfamiliar with because there are no strings attached. You know, in, in our love relationships, there are always hidden motives and Strings and there's a sting somewhere. We at least we suspect that there is, but uh, with with the Lord that's not true. His his love is unconditioned by our performance or the way we look or the way we behave, as the uh, hymn puts it that we just sung. Oh, the deep deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, free. There's no bottom to it. There's no way to measure it. There's no standard by which we can we can uh, 
can measure no human standard because all human standards fail. Um, I used to to work up in the middle park of, of Colorado, middle park area in Colorado, around Kremling and Partial and Steamboat Springs. And uh, on the weekends, we used to go hiking up in the Rockies. And one day, we came across one of these deep green alpine lakes that just seemed to have no bottom to them. And this this particular uh, lake had an overhang and. And we crawled out on that, that that rock, and we were looking down into the depths of this lake. Normally up there, as in in the uh, the mountains here, you can see 20 or 30 feet to the bottom of the lake, but we couldn't see any bottom. So I had a long piece of nylon cord and in my pack, about 100 feet long. We tied a rock on it, and we dropped it down in the water, and, and the rock still hung free when we came to the end of the of the string. And so my friend had some cord, and he tied it on his, and and we just continued to let that rock go down, and we never did hit the bottom. And uh, I thought of, of that hymn as we were trying to measure the, the vastness of that, of that lake. God's love is vast, unmeasured. There's nothing that we can do that, that causes God to dislike us or frown at us or get angry because we don't operate on a performance basis. He just loves us as we are. I know a lot of people doubt that, perhaps because of the way you were raised, something you were taught, or perhaps the way you were treated by your own father, and uh, you question whether God can love you like that, but uh, it's the Bible that tells us that God loves us. As the chorus puts it, if you can think back that far in your memory, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's where we find out about the love of God. You don't, you can't discover the love of God by looking at nature. Nature, as the poet said, is red in tooth and claw. But uh, you discover the love of God by looking into the Word. And that's what corrects our thinking. John White says some people's concept of God is that he's tall and ascetic and his favorite word is no and his favorite pastime is uh, doing without. He's made of thunder and ice. But uh, that's, not, uh, that's not the God that, that you and I know from Scripture. He's loving. He's kind. He forgives. He knows us inside and out. He knows our failures. He understands when we, when we drop the ball. And it doesn't change the way he feels about us at all. He just uh, continues to love us. He wants to know everything about us. Um, Mrs. Merkel, our kindergarten teacher, was having a very profound conversation with one of the children this past week. A little girl walked up and said, Mrs. Merkel, I threw up in my bed last night. And Mrs. Merkel said, that's very interesting, honey. Thank you. And she went on about her business, and I thought, well, now that's God-like, you know. God just wants to know everything about us, every little detail of our life. Nothing is too gross. He just, uh, he just loves us the way we are. And that forgiveness is infinite. It goes, it's not conditioned upon our performance. It's based upon Christ's performance on the cross. Um... I used to, I had a friend once. I, I used to work with high school kids years ago. And uh, I had a high school friend whose name was Jay Bathurst. And uh, Jay had a very unfortunate childhood. His mother died uh, from, a, from uh, a brain tumor when he was about 13 or 14 years old. And he just became a very disillusioned young man. His father, in trying to keep the rest of the family t- together, simply couldn't meet his needs. And uh, Jay just ran wild. He ran like an animal up in the Santa Cruz Mountains and south of San Francisco, and, and just uncontrollable. He used to go to the grapefruit orchards and pick uh, steel grapefruit 
and he would stand along the freeway and throw them at cars. And when the police would come to get him, he would wait until they got out of their car and then got as close to him as uh, he thought he could get away with, and then he'd just run like a deer through the mountains. And he just did that for months, and no one could control him. And, and I couldn't get next to him. And um, I had talked to some of his teachers and his dad, and but uh, there was there was really no way to to win this boy's love, it seemed. Until one day I walked into my office and I uh, thought something was amiss when I walked in. There was trash all over my desk and I looked up at the ceiling and there was a big hole about that big around in my ceiling. Someone had fallen through the roof. And uh, I got up on my desk and I stuck my head through the hole and started looking around and I saw all these footprints up there in the attic. And I realized what had happened because on a couple of occasions when Jay didn't go home, he had slept up in the attic of the church. There was a trap door that gained, uh, by which he could gain access to the attic and he crawled up there and went to sleep because he didn't want to go home. It was warm. He was sheltered from the weather. And I realized that he had been walking on the rafters and fallen through right into my office. Well, my first thought was, boy, that is the last straw. You know, that kid has had it. And uh, I went home and talked it over with Carolyn. And somehow in, in talking over uh, Jay's most recent problem, I began to realize that there might be a better way to reach Jay, and perhaps this was the opportunity that the Lord was giving us. So we had the ceiling repaired, and, and I was going to tell Jay the next time I saw him, everything is all right, ceiling's repaired, no problems, just want you to know I love you. But uh, I couldn't find him. He uh, didn't go home, he didn't show up at any of the meetings, and uh, I became uh, sort of a hound of heaven trying to find him. I called. I went by his house. I went by school trying to catch him after school, and he'd take off, and I'd see him dashing for his car out through the parking lot, but I uh, just couldn't catch him. And one day, one of those, it was just, it was kind of a fluke. I, I was down at the church building and walking toward my office when I saw him wheel through the parking lot in his old beat-up pickup truck, and uh, I thought, ah, I got him. And so as he came around this way, I went around the other way, and when he saw me, he got out of his pickup and started to run across the parking lot. And I went around the back. The other, I knew I'd never catch him, so I went around the other side of the building. And as he came around the, the, the end of the building, I was waiting for him. And I just grabbed him by the front of his down jacket. And I said, Jay! He said, I've been looking for you. And he said, I'll bet you have. I said, no, really, come here. I want to show you something. And I uh, took him into my office, and, and uh, he looked down at the floor. And I said, look. And he looked up, and he said, So? And I said, well, the, the ceiling's all repaired. He said, so what? And I said, well, I, I know you're the one that fell through my ceiling. And, but look, it's all repaired. He said, how much do I owe you? And I said, not a thing. It's all paid for. He said, oh, you've got to be kidding. I said, no, no, it's all paid for. I just want you to know I love you. And I want to be your friend. Everything's all right. And, you know, for days afterward, Jay would come by and he'd say, sure, I don't know anything. <laughs> he just couldn't get it through his head that everything was all right. And you see, that's, that's precisely what God has done for us. We, in, in a very real sense, fell through his ceiling. We, we marred his universe by our sin. And, uh, and the Lord himself paid for it. And now he hounds us. He, he's relentless in that love. He goes after us to tell us it's all right, it's all right, it's paid for. 
And we, like Jay, we run, you know, because we feel that we, we're greatly in debt to God and we feel our guilt keenly and we want somehow to set things right. And God says, no, it, it's all right. I love you. You're forgiven. Everything's okay. Um, there's a man named Sandy Gandel. He wrote a hymn some years ago, one line of which goes, Well, may the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all in thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. It reminded me of Peter Gilquist's uh, story in his book on forgiveness, describing the man who was walking along saying, Oh, he sinned some sin he'd always, he was accustomed to sinning, and he said, Oh, I've done it again. And this voice came out of the sky and said, Did what? <laughs> and you see, that's, that's what we need to understand. We're awash in God's love and, and his forgiveness. And as John puts it, we love him. And we love others because he first loved us. That's what takes uh, the threat out of life. That's what keeps us from being threatening to others when we realize that we're accepted. As Paul puts it, we're accepted in the beloved one. And we can relax. We're not on a performance basis. God loves us just the way we are. He loves our bodies. He loves our minds. Even when we permit the improper things to slosh around in our minds, God knows and he still loves. And, and we live in that climate of acceptance. Now, that's where we need to begin, with the understanding that God loves us. And then from that point, we want to respond in devotion and in love to him. And essentially, that, uh, that devotion expresses itself in obedience. That's what it means to love God. It means to obey Him, whether we feel like it or not, whether we're up or down, whether we feel worthy or not. We begin by simply reminding ourselves that God loves us, and then as Bob Dylan puts it in one of his records, what can I do for you? What is, what is God saying to you? What is He asking you to do? And seeing that way, Life is full of opportunities to love Him. They abound on every, on every hand. You get up in the morning and, and you feel cranky or moody and it's been a bad night. You've been tossing and, and uh, haven't gotten the proper amount of sleep and you're irritable and the, your husband or wife happens to wander through and that's a good chance to take out your wrath on somebody. Well, that's a chance to love God. You just put away the old cranky mood because we can we have that power and authority in Christ and, and begin to, to show love and reach out toward the people around us because that's what it means to love God what, it, what do you want me to do Lord and then do it and that's how we express our, our love or perhaps you're faced during the week with some shady business transaction something you know that will put money in your pockets but it's not honest and you know that, and you would violate your own integrity by doing it. And here's an opportunity to love God, to simply do what you know you ought to do, what God wants you to do, regardless of how you might feel personally about it. Or maybe you got angry at your husband this past week because he said he would be home at 6, and he was out uh, hunting birds or something and didn't get home till 7, and the dinner is cold, and that's the sort of thing that does tend to make cooks angry. But uh, and, and you should perhaps talk to your husband if that's a pattern with him. But uh, that anger, you see, gives you an opportunity to love God, to just put it away and receive his 
grace and his strength to be loving and, and patient and kind. See, that's what Scripture means when it says love God. It's just simple acts of obedience. We want to do something big for God. We want to uh, hold uh, crusades in, in which we evangelize thousands of people and we think that's impressive to God. But, but what's impressive to God is what you're doing as you drive along in your vehicle or you teach in your classroom or you're taking a shower or you're sighting down the barrel of a rifle or whatever. See, it's, 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 all, it's doing what God wants us to do in all of life. That's what's impressive. And that's what it means to love God. Now the question, of course, is how do we know what God wants? Well, it comes from the Word. It's Scripture that tells us not only that God loves us, but how we can love God. That's why we need to spend time in the Word. Because this is God's Word to us, to you and to me. You remember last week we made the point that, that uh, uh, in Jesus, in talking to the Sadducees, said, remember, it was written to you. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that statement occurs in Exodus 4, which was written 2,000 years before this time. And yet Jesus says it was written to you. And that's what we need to understand. This is God's word to us. And God wants us to look into this word and see what pleases him and obey him. Understanding that this is God's word to us changes our entire perspective on the word. This isn't merely history. It isn't a book of rules and regulations. It's God speaking to Gary. It's God speaking to Paul. It's God speaking to Scott. It's God speaking to David. I was talking to uh, Carolyn one day in the kitchen and the phone rang. And I picked it up and a voice on the other end said, uh, This is Don Shula. Could I speak to Dave Roper? Now, I knew that uh, Miami was in town to play the 49ers, but I have this clown friend who was always doing this stuff to me. So immediately I was wary. My first reaction was to say, uh-huh, uh, this is uh, Bob Greasy on the other end here, but I uh, suppressed it, fortunately. And I said, uh, uh-huh. And uh, there was a silence on the other end for a few moments, and then he said, no, uh, this is Don Shula of the Miami Dolphins. And I thought, boy, this guy's really laying it on. But again, I played it straight. I said, uh, yes, sir, what, uh, what can I do for you? And he explained that uh, Miami was in town and they were playing the 49ers and uh, they have a chapel service on Sunday morning and would I be willing to come down and speak to the, the team. At, and the longer he talked, it began to dawn on me, that is sure enough Don Shula. <laughs> and it was really, oh, I just really enjoyed that conversation. We chatted for a while, you know, and, and uh, I hung the phone up and I was really psyched. And I, by that time, Carolyn had wandered into the living room and I said, guess who that was? And she said, who? I said, that's Don Shula. She said, well, that's nice, dear. And I went on back and uh, told Randy and Brian, woke up Josh and told him. And I was so excited because I had talked to Don Shula on the feet, talked to me. He even said, can I talk to Dave Roper? <laughs> now, you see, that, that's what we need to understand about God's Word. If we can get that excited about a football coach, how much more exciting is it to realize that God has revealed himself to me. He loves me, and he wants me to know how to love him back. And therefore, we need to spend time in the Word. We need to commit ourselves to meeting God. You see, as, as Jesus said to the woman at the well, Jesus, the Father, seeks 
such as these to worship Him. God is seeking you out and me out to listen to Him. And there's no greater privilege than listening to His words as He spells out for us what it means for us to respond in love to Him. And then, when we respond in obedience to the Word, we come to know Him. The biblical theory of knowledge is, is a bit different. You don't know God merely by reading the Bible or by hearing the Bible taught or by listening to tapes or reading books, as valuable as those things may be. You come to know God by loving Him, by obeying Him. As Jesus put it, to him who has, more shall be given. In other words, the extent to which we give ourselves to know the will of God and do it, to just that extent, God gives us more of himself. And you'll discover as you begin to obey the truth and act on the knowledge of God as he begins to reveal it, God will reveal more and more of himself. That's how we come to know him. Now, the second point that Jesus makes has to do with our relationship to our neighbor. The first great commandment, Jesus says, is to love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second commandment, he says, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophet. Now, when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself, he's not commanding us to love ourselves. He's simply assuming that we love ourselves. As Paul puts it in another place, no one hates his own body, but he loves it and cherishes it. It's simply a fact of life. So he's not saying love yourself. He's saying love others the way you love yourself. Care for them. Meet their needs. Obey God with reference to them. That's why Jesus said the second commandment is of the same nature or actually the same thing as the first great commandment. If you love God, you'll love your neighbor. That's why Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Now, he didn't mean that we can merely assent to the fact that we love God and then live uh, profligate lives. That's not the point. He's, he's saying if you love God and you understand what it means to love God, that is to obey him, then you'll always do what's right to your neighbor. So the question is always, God, what do you want me to do with reference to my neighbor? And our neighbor, as Jesus pointed out to us, is the next person that we meet who has a need. It may not really be our next-door neighbor. It may be. But our, next, next, our neighbor may be the person sitting right next to us now or someone that we come across through the day who has a need. You remember the question that the man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. The point of that parable is the first person you meet who has a need, that's your neighbor. So love him. How do I love him? Do what God has called you to do with regard to him. Perhaps it's just to listen and nothing more. Or perhaps it's to rebuke. There, there was a time in Jesus' life when he had to turn on Peter and rebuke him sharply. It was done out of love, but it was the thing that was necessary for that man at that time. Loving God simply means, or loving our neighbor simply means determining on the basis of God's word what my neighbor needs and then moving to meet that need. And as I said before, this is what simplifies all of life. The world tends to complicate things, and I think even the church does. We make it so difficult. 
Life is hard enough as it is without our complicating things. We need someone to simplify it. And that's what the Lord does for us here. The world says if you want to have success in this world, you need to uh, find the right sort of deodorant. Once you locate that commodity, then uh, people will flock around you and satisfy your needs. Or if you buy the right kind of car, then a pretty girl will come sit next to you and and you'll live happily ever after. Or if you make good grades, the corporations will clamor after you. Or if you make it big in sports or in the academic world, then you'll you'll be peaceful and successful. And so we we just run around trying to do all these things that Madison Avenue tells us will equip us for life and, and make our life meaningful. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We all know that. We've been there. And uh, being religious doesn't work. Uh, teaching Sunday school classes just for the sake of teaching, it doesn't work, doesn't fulfill, doesn't satisfy. Going to meetings doesn't satisfy. What really satisfies us is loving God. First of all, knowing that God loves us and then responding to him at the deepest level of our being. Obedience, as Jesus put it, is what feeds our heart. As he said to the disciples, they came back to the well, he hadn't eaten, and uh, he didn't seem to be hungry, and he said, my, my meat is to do the will of the Father. There's really nothing like that sort of, of action. When we begin to obey God in the simple things of life, the small things of life, we discover that way down deep, some itch that we've never been able to scratch gets scratched. There is a satisfaction and a peace and a quietness of heart that you just cannot find any other place. And then we discover as we launch out to love God in practical ways toward others in the mainstream of life that God shows us through his word how we should respond to all sorts of people, nice people, ugly people, people who don't love me, people who do. And uh, though it's, again, it's not easy, the truth is very simple. It's very clear. We don't need to be in the dark about what God wants us to do. So may I suggest for all of us tomorrow morning when you get up, do what uh, Ray Stedman said to do. Get up and stretch and then smile and say, God loves me. And uh, nothing I'm going to do today is going to change that fact. If I uh, commit the worst sin I can imagine today, God will still love me because my acceptance is based on what Christ did, not what I do. Thank you, Lord, that you love me. And then just uh, look for opportunities to love him. When you go in the kitchen and you see your wife in there fixing breakfast, just give her a great big hug and tell her you love her. Tell her she's important to you, that she's special, that you couldn't do without her. And then help her set the table. Instead of getting the newspaper and sitting down and reading it, help her fix breakfast, stand in the kitchen and talk to her. That's loving God. And we think of the big things that get written up in Christianity today. That's loving God. But uh, the Lord says, no, it's right where you are. Start loving God in practical ways with reference to your wife. And then you, as you get in your car and you start down to the office and it hits you that I've got the worst job in the world and who in the world can enjoy working in that office and what a sad uh, situation this is, no, just stop and remind yourself what God has said about your, your office and love him. God says that's a mission field. 
as uh, Overseas Crusades puts it, every heart with Christ is a missionary, and every heart without Christ is a mission field. That's a mission field, and I'm a missionary. And I can go into that place depending upon you, and I can have an, an effect on people's lives. I can be joyful and positive and thankful. And you walk in the kitchen, in the uh, office, and uh, you discover your secretary has dropped a coffee pot and there are coffee grounds all over the floor. Instead of chewing her out, start loving God. Get down on your knees and pick up the coffee grounds and, and help her. Say, be a, be a servant. And on through the day, what, whatever demands are placed upon you, just love God. And by loving God, you'll love your neighbor. And you'll find that deep down satisfaction that all of us are looking for. Now, may I merely read the last paragraph of chapter 22? We don't have time to look at it in any detail. But uh, the Lord now turns the tables on the Pharisees. They have been questioning him. He addresses a question to them. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, or the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord sit to the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. You see, the Jews of that day were well aware that the Messiah would be a son of David. He would be of David's lineage. He would be of the tribe of Judah and, and David's family. That promise was given to David. There would always be a descendant from his house who would sit on the throne, and therefore they knew the Messiah would come from his, uh, from his line of, of descendants. But uh, Jesus asked the key question, how then, if Messiah is the son of David, can we explain that David, in Psalm 110, calls his own son Lord? And that one they couldn't answer because they did not understand nor were they willing to understand who Jesus was, that he was both the son of David in terms of his natural lineage and he was the son of God. He was Lord. And here he answers the question which is raised way back in chapter 21. Who do you, by what authority do you do what you do? And here he answers, it's because I'm the Lord of the universe. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Who? Is Jesus Christ to you and to me? If he's the Lord, then we've entered into all that we've been talking about. We know the love of God. We've experienced it. It's all around us. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But if he's not yet Lord, then we haven't experienced it. We're on the outside looking in. And if your heart yearns to be on the inside, all you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I come to you just the way I am. I know you don't require any more spit and polish. You don't want me to gussy myself up and try to be anything more than I am. I'm just, uh, I, I, I failed, and, I, and I, I've been misguided, and I need a Lord. Will you be my Lord? And when you make that decision in life, then you enter into the love of God, and you begin to experience it. And you not only have the presence of God, but you have the power of God that makes possible everything that we hunger for in life. Let's pray. And would you, as we pray together, 
if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, ask the Lord Jesus to be Lord. Just say to him, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Come in and be Lord and Savior and make me the kind of man or woman that I've always wanted to be. And then thank him for coming in. As in all of Christian life, it all depends upon his word, not our feelings, but what he's promised. And then those of you who already know him as Lord, let's thank him for his love for us. Remind ourselves again of his relentless love. And then tell him again how much we love him and how much we want to please him. And thank him that by his strength we can please him. Oh, Father, thank you so much for loving us as you do, just as we are. Thank you that uh, we can come openly and transparently without hiding and faking, trying to be something that we're not, and receive that love. And it's our desire through this week to love you in response, out in life where people are, not in isolation. Give us the courage to move out into the, into the mainstream where people are and love you in practical ways in terms of our, the way we treat people and the attitudes that we have toward them. Free us from our prejudice and our bias, our threatening ways, our timidity, all the things that keep us from, from being the kind of men and women that we long to be. Thank you for doing all this for us. In Jesus' name, amen.